Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the New Books Network, this time in English. Um, the channel that we are in right now is the New, Bo- New Books Network Critical Theory. And we have the pleasure of speaking with Irmgard Emelheins about um, her new book, Toxic Loves, Impossible Futures, Feminist Living is Resistance, that uh, came out in January. And um, from a personal perspective, I've had such a pleasure getting to know you through reading the book and having conversations related to the book, but also related to other things. So thank you so much for being here and having this conversation. Um, do you mind introducing yourself? No. Hi, Candice. And the pleasure has been mine also. Uh, I am a writer and researcher and teacher based in Mexico City. I am from Mexico. And uh, my work centers on the relationships between politics and aesthetics, culture, neoliberalism, And there's a line of thinking in my work about um, feminism and situated knowledges, and this is where this book is coming from. So it's more experimental writing I've been playing with in the past few years that became this book. Do you have a a name for the type of genre that you... The experimental writing, the mini essays... No, you know, sometimes one day I got an email from somebody in in British Columbia telling me that they were doing a, a class on experimental critical theory, and I was in that category. But I don't know. I think I, well, I've been inspired by you know Maggie Nelson, Chris Krause, uh, and other writers who are hard to categorize. Arundhati Roy is also a big influence. Cristina Rivera Garza. And uh, we are, we're all playing with genre, I guess, uh, trying to break away from this uh, grid of academic thinking, no? And, and mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important to, to take note of because um, the way that you approach the topic through your writing is accessible, but also intellectual. So 
I don't know if you could talk about that sort of like, was that your goal when setting out to write or does that, is that just kind of an organic thing that came through your analyses? It was, it was an an organic thing, but I did want, I was uh, considering many things when I was putting this together, when I was putting together this book, I didn't write it as a book, like, okay, page one, chapter one, this is it. So it was more like playing with putting together, rearranging the order bringing in writing that comes from different realms. And so there is some art criticism. There's uh, personal situated, uh, I call them vignettes. You know, you know, I'm right here, sitting here, and this is what I'm experiencing or seeing, uh, trying to describe uh, contemporary Mexico moments and moments uh, of, of or globalized lives as well. No, There are also moments in which I engage with... Um, the tradition of feminist thinking. And one of the goals of the book or the purposes was to create a constellation of the thinkers that I have influ- that have influenced me, honor them in the present, acknowledge their work, and weave in together, weave into that my own concerns from a contemporary perspective. No? Um, so in a way, that was really fun, like putting together this constellation. It's interesting that you say constellation. I see it also as sort of a, a weaving, you know, like a um, tejido. What, what do you like a a piece of embroidery or, or embroidery? But more like um, I, it's very visual. What comes to me: different threads running through different colors. Some are bigger, some are smaller. It's a it's a, and I appreciate pushing the boundaries of of genre because I think it's necessary. I also think. Um, contemporary writing can needs to be more accessible, right? And and I think that's what you 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 get at from this perspective. Bringing the personal in is is that difficult for you? The vignettes does that seem raw or vulnerable, or is it something that you've always included in your writing style? Hi, it feels vulnerable and scary, and sometimes I don't want to read them back. Like right now, I'm I'm working on translating my Palestine chronicles, and there, that's a lot of personal experience and writing, and it's uh, two heartbreaks happen in the book, and that's really hard to translate. I do feel born vulnerable, and that's uh, that feels uh, terrifying. But that's also one of the jobs that I gave myself in the book, and it's also coming together with a pre- personal process to embrace my own vulnerability. And from there, find strength, but first and foremost, try to reconnect and heal uh, uh, severed or wounded um, relationships, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's also like a under threat going in the, in the, in the book. Mm-hmm. It's a healing process of sorts. It's sort uh, of but also, like... You know, what was also important to think about is, you know, the personal voice, the individual voice, the person, the celebrity, the gifted voice coming predominant as an individual in public space is something that I was wary and critical of. And I was trying to stay away from a narcissistic voice. And also from confession, which is traditionally a genre that is attributed to, to female writing. No, mm-hmm. um, but also what I, another of my concerns was that <laughs> to make fun of myself in a way, because when I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I thought that uh, writing was 
uh, the writing, um, academic writing was an ungendered voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> right? But I really believed that. <laughs> and that I could have like a rational voice that was purely academic, detached from everything in life. And as you mentioned, in your own work, our writing concerns, our research concerns, what we teach, what we think about is deeply traversed by our by our, our own personal experience, which is a gendered experience um, that is also traversed by by gender violence and um, and wounds that come with being uh, a woman. No, um, so that was also something that comes up in the book, I guess non-gendered writing that's that's interesting and i wonder if if this collection could be considered you know it's informed by feminism but would you i mean when you were writing to try to capture a very different voice than when you were doing your doctoral dissertation is there a conscious um structure that you use to sort of break that to to embrace whatever gender expression comes out naturally is it something that you have to do yeah donna haraway situated situated knowledge is this breakthrough in that sense no and so important for us um but situated knowledge is for haraway means to place in positionality in the sense of geography, identity, race, and of course, gender. Uh, but what, but what, what, I try, what I also try to weave into, which is some, something that comes up in your work as well, is emotions and, and personal history, and not in a narcissistic of, or, of, or confessional way. Does that make sense? It does. But I find it, you know, it's really hard to do. And I think that's something that... Um, that I would love to hear more about just how you, when you're going back and you're editing and you're reading and you're thinking, you know, how, how am, am I striking the non-narcissistic chord that I want to? That's, I mean, I, I read it in such a non-narcissistic way that, but it wasn't, but you didn't objectify yourself either. Right. And so there's, there's that fine line of um, really, being true to, to yourself and to the stories that you're telling and how they're related to your intellectual process. And it's, it's brilliant. And I think it's really hard to do. And so do you, I mean, does it, 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 it is challenging, I'm guessing, right. From what you've mentioned, it's hard to do. To it's find challenging. That balance. Yeah. And also another thing that, that was so, so important to add was uh, class and the history of class and how class determines determines us today. But it's so hard to talk about class today without the falling into a polarizing debate. And then this is why I went back to the history of uh, talking about class, uh, for example, uh, in Elena Poniatowska, you know. Um, and uh, uh, I also wanted to render our homage to Mexican intellectuals and thinkers because... And this was super embarrassing, Candice. I had the privilege of getting to know one day Marta Lamas. I came over to her place. They have a gathering every Friday of a collection of women of her generation, including Elenita and Magali Lara, an amazing painter. Um, Brilliant women are part of this gathering every Friday. And I had the privilege to come by. 
And I gave to Marta my neoliberalism book, the one that came out in Spanish in 2016. And I have a chapter on feminism that centers on a narrative of myself giving birth and the medicalization of, of labor and so on and so forth. And I was engaging with contemporary feminist thinkers like Nina Power. And she was like, well, what about us? And I was like, I want to die so bad right now. Like, you are right. But this is also part of one, the, one of the ways in which we are trained academically. No, we don't look at that history or legacy. And I guess that has to do with the loss of history or whatever, with postmodernity and so on. Um, so also I wanted to acknowledge them and the, the work that they did. And we also had a conversation about how women our generation took uh, feminism for granted. And we only took it up later in life uh, because it came fighting to us literally, right? And um, also the younger generation is also driving us in that direction and so on. But we took so much for granted thanks to them. Thanks to people and thinkers like Marta and Elena that did so much work for us. So I wanted to acknowledge and honor that. Which you do beautifully. I mean, I think it's very rare to find a critical theory informed text that is able to be, to, to honor both, you know, the canonized theorists, Judith Butler, and also um, theorists that are relevant to, to, to your place, to your situated knowledge. Um, because it's 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 important to do, and I, I appreciate that very much. When you were talking about, wanted sorry, to introduce. Sorry, because this this book was originally written in Spanish, and it's going to come out in Spanish in September. I wanted to introduce uh, thinkers thinkers that are important to me to a younger Spanish audience, like Arundhati Roy or Leanne Betamosarki Simpson, which to me are absolutely seminal, and not translated to Spanish. You know. Hmm. Wow. That's important to take into consideration that you um, that you write in at least two languages, right? Do you do you write in any other language? No, Spanish and no. English. I could do you feel... fool around with French, but it would take me like longer. <laughs> so how how is the process of writing? Because you also translate your yeah. own work and others, right? And so, um, how is the process of writing in one language different from another for you? Um... Well, I guess you do the same. And for me, I don't know what it is like for you, but for me, it's completely natural to, to shift from one language to another. To me, it's like intellectual or mind jogging. You know, I, I actually enjoy the process of translation. And sometimes I supplement my income by doing legal translation. And uh, yeah, to me, for, for me, it's, it's fun, very natural. Um, I have like these interruptions when I have to look up a word in the dictionary and that bother me, but then I go back, you know, so I, I do it all the time. And it's a, it's a, it's a good way to rewrite myself. It's a, like rather like, like rather than translating from one language to the other, to me, it feels like rewriting. Um, this is why my translating my, my Palestinian chronicles is, posing a challenge for me right now because I cannot rewrite that because it's a record of my experience, right? But I was 10 years younger than now, so yeah. Yeah. And you wrote originally in Spanish? I, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I find that, you know, it's very difficult. For me, there are certain phrases and terms that's, that 
are best communicated in one language or the other. And so it's the code switching happens for me in my thought processes. But did you write your dissertation in, in English? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got it written in English. And uh, yeah. I have one in Mexico, I guess in, in Spanish, Mexican is more open to Anglicisms, but I have an editor in Spain I work with sometimes and she's like, I want to kill you. Yeah. <laughs> There's this sort of colonial, you know, voice there too with, prioritization of certain types of language, which that's something that I think um, I appreciate the language that you use because I do feel that you are, um, you're aware of the power of language, but you're not fearful of it. And so, I mean, perhaps you are, I'm, I'm assuming I shouldn't assume, but it um, there's a respect for language here in, in this text that I find to be really beautiful, but you also use language very powerfully. And that is, I think, you know, one of the, one of the many things that makes these vignettes, these pieces so, so wonderful. Candace, that's the biggest compliment I've ever gotten. I want to cry right now. Really? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, um, it, it, it's, I, again, you know, I think it's the same writing between genres, pushing the boundaries of language, those are really difficult things to do. And those are not things that many of us are trained to do. It's just something that comes with our own, you know, I think um, our own research and our own, our own growth, maybe teaching. I think teaching helps with that too, right? When you, when you're around younger people, you, you've mentioned that before that you're inspired a lot by your students. And I think that comes out. Um, you were talking before we about class and I was thinking about the piece about Las Niñas Bien. And um, that really, I think that conversation that you're having about the sort of liberal sensibility is what you call it here is really poignant. Um, did, have you received any sort of feedback or criticism or does, do you have dialogues or discourses with, any of the folks that you mentioned here, have they reached out to you? No, because I, the book just came out and uh, I've, I, like the artists that are part of the book are reading it and I've gotten like super positive feedback. For, for example, Valérie Manart, this Belgian painter who works uh, with bodily abstraction, I would call it amazing, amazing audio uh, visual work. Um, that I've known for a long time and respect. And she's like, this is great. Like I usually uh, read theoretical books and get tired halfway through and you got me really engaged with your questions. So that was a huge, huge compliment. Um, But no, I haven't had any feedback. Um, Yours and Valérie's and another friend is reading it. So let's, let's, it just came out like a month ago. So, Um, but uh, back to Guadalupe Loaiza and Las Niñas, Bien, listeners and Candace do not repeat this, but I grew up reading Guadalupe Loaiza because <laughs> that, that's what was in my mother's drawer and I would just like read anything that appeared in my house, any book. And, um, and uh, she describes this world of privileged women in Mexico, which I knew, I now realize was about to crumble because such a voice could only emerge when this old bourgeois world was about to disappear. And um, and and Guadalupe was like this imaginary of you know what 
women, my mother's generation, are aspired to or, or thought that they were living in. And there is a remake uh, or, or there is an interpretation of one of her books, Las Niñas Bien, uh, that came out as a movie a couple of years ago by Alejandra Marquez. And what the movie focuses on, which I think it's very relevant today to understand our recent history, is this passage from the crumbling of the bourgeoisie in the 80s and the coming in of uh, neoliberalism, which meant uh, the production of a new elite. Uh, now We are now in the same process, the production of a new post-neoliberal elite. And I put post-neoliberal in, in quotes because it's an intensification of neoliberalism by way of extractivism and a rearrangement of some of the government contracts that are assigned for state projects and so on. It's more chronic capitalism, you know, same old. Uh, but this also happened in the... Um, in the 20s and 30s of last century with the Mexican Revolution and in, in which the revolution also brought a rearrangement of elites. And this is when you have uh, Pita Amor's autobiography um, describing the hardships her family's going through because their haciendas uh, in Morelos were taken away by the Zapatistas no? and how they cannot afford elegant clothes or a or a fancy first communion and so on. And this was also on my mind, you know, to rethink class from that perspective and as recorded by, by women writers. And also another um, aspect of what I was interested about is um, how this female voice was also a militant voice as embodied, for instance, in the work of Elena Poniatowska you know, and how she represents that bourgeois left um, that uh, was in solidarity with uh, guerrilla and communist movements in, in Mexico and Latin America. And also I'm interested of exploring in the book what, what is the situation of that in the present. Which really does come through. I, mean, I think you situate yourself very well in you know, adoration and respect for those more militant voices, but also respecting where you see yourself in today's world as an intellectual. And well, the, I, ended, I, you know, when I came back to Mexico and I started uh, emerging in the world because I traveled and lived abroad for, for 12 years and then I came back to Mexico, I ended up in Palestine and then coming back here, I understood that I was in a way taking up their journey in the present, you know, mm. understanding militancy mm. um, from, a, from a perspective of the present. That's that has to be uh, not everyone gets to have that experience, right? Or or seeks out that type of experience to be able to influence the way that they're writing, and and therefore the personal really is political. The personal really is relevant, um, and you know I think that's the way you approach the concept of love. Really, you know that um, it's not this it it's not this sort of amorphous concept that you're trying to discuss in, in the text, but rather um, all the different manifestations of love and how they can really inform our worldview. And I wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about that, how you, how you, how you see love as a concept through this work. I, I guess 
love is um, hardship, but not in a romantic, melancholic way, but rather it's hard work. And it's uh, active uh, binding, if that makes sense, and is um, healing the wounds and making things right and being persistent at it. And love is also self-love and understand that, you know, there was this, there is this idea that, um, there is this idea of fragmentation that traverses modernity, no? And the idea of the shattered subject became the site of radical writing. Like I'm thinking, um, you know, like Patti Smith and music. Uh, I, her name is escaping me, punk writer from New York. Kathy Acker, sorry. Kathy Acker is like this um, fragmented subject, but I'm thinking love as, and you know, there's so much damage and self-damage in those those voices that also has to do with gender relationships. And I was trying to rethink that fragmentation as a point of departure and thinking we are already always fragmented and it's not, today it's not a radical way to think but rather to acknowledge and embrace that fragmentation and the vulnerability that comes with as a beginning of strength. But that strength is impossible without acknowledging interdependency with others and, and acknowledging that, uh, the, the, that, the, that this interdependency with others has been wounded or it's something needs to be made right. And this is why I have a piece um, by a dear friend uh, Silvia Gruner, and the piece is called Reparar, and it, it, there's a reproduction of it in the book, and it's the paved uh, floor of a street in Mexico City, which is taping with duct tape, you know? Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot of that, uh, and I've been having dialogues with her for years about dislocation and this location comes with coloniality and with modernity and with it a lot of pain, you know, which is not necessarily personal, but is shared by everybody. And but we just, we are beginning to understand it. Like the pain of 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 being uprooted, which is also something that Simone Weil, one of my most favorite thinkers, writes about. It, it reminds me of um the beginning and end of Roma all of the concentration on the floor and the cleaning of the floor and the, the surface and, you know, the metaphor involved there and how many of the scenes in that film are from the street level. And I think, uh, you know, that, that idea of just the cobblestone streets in Mexico, you know, embracing the colonial past, but also realizing that it's broken and it has hurt involved in it and pain. And, I love the idea of the duct tape. I think it's <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> it's a I really do. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll I look forward to looking at it more closely because I don't know that I spent as much time looking at it as I should. Um, but that leads me to thinking about sort of the echo criticism that you have included here as well. So references to how neoliberalism has led us to a fraught relationship with the earth, with our, you said, you know, with our own relationships interpersonally. Um, did, did that come about that relationship that you um, expand upon here? Did that come about from your travels? Do you feel as though maybe the influence of having seen different, different sort of nature vignettes has informed your 
understanding of, you know, globalization and ecology and where we are with regard to plant our planet and caring for our planet, loving our planet? I think it has to do with thinking about what it meant to have grown up uh, by a dead river that stank a lot in the summer and just seeing my dad stare at it and try to wonder what the hell is he thinking? You know, if he's thinking this is the world I'm inheriting to my children or something. But what has also really marked me was the the chance to travel to Palestine and being hosted there by amazing people who through conversations uh, help me understand what colonialism is. So to me, coming back to Mexico was a shock. Like I saw it all of a sudden. I, luckily, I before I returned to Mexico, I spent some time in Brazil, which is Mexico in another language somehow. And then Guatemala, in which the colonial situation is in a way more extreme and analogous to Israel-Palestine right now, because there is half of the population is um, native and half of the population is Europeans or descendants from Europeans, no? This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And what it means. Displaced. Right, and displaced. Right. And so... Coming back to Mexico and just it hit me and it was a shock. So this is one of the sites uh, where I think my work and this is um, sort of what I tried to do in the decolonial passages of the book to help understand or to bring in a different understanding of the legacy of colonialism in Mexico because, you know, the originally populations are alternatively uh, dismissed, ignored, invisibilized, to say the least, no, in the cultural discourse, or folklorized. And I think in Canada and in the States, the debates are so much more forward than in Mexico. And, uh, and this is why an awareness that something has been broken needs to be brought to the fore, you know, and, and to recognize that as a starting point, not, and not to think of, Above all, not to think of ourselves as Mexicans, as descendants of the pre-Hispanic originary na- natives that were colonized, no? which is the, the official line right now, and what a, a lot of people actually believe. So, um, so it's even another degree of appropriation. No? Um, so yes, travels uh, into Palestine have informed um, my thoughts on, on 
on decolonization and about our awareness to the environment. You know, one of the questions that I also play with in the book is why there is no solidarity? Why is the left so self-centered and unable to connect with struggles for land defense or against mega projects or against extractivism. And I think in part, this has to do with racism. In part, it has to do with um, the love for progress and development and that as bringing equality for all, which is absolutely wrong. And that's actually um, what I'm taking in in my next book to question modernity, meaning uh, I've come to the conclusion that my task is not to decolonize, but to think about ways to become unmodern. Now that's sort of like what I'm currently working on right now. Uh, But what I found deeply uh, rich and promising is the hypothesis that the Argentinian feminists have come up with, um, you know, uh, by... Veronica Gago and Ansaldúa and Silvia Ribeiro Cusicanqui, and they are saying the same damage that we are doing to the earth is reproduced on women's bodies. So there is a continuum of violence against uh, women and the environment, and this is the site of of contemporary struggles and a way to uh, draw bonds to territorial and defense movements. Um, to me, that is key to understand. Uh, what a kind like a um, an opposition to hegemony in the present would start? Yeah, that's that's a lot to to think about. Um, and I wonder, I just uh, I wonder how it is that, yeah, how that how that process. I mean, how it will play out. I guess I think it. it I look forward to seeing how you circle back to it in your next text. I think it's. Uh, magnetic. That's the way I think about it. Magnetic. Um, and you do talk a lot about the violence on the female body. Um, reproductive labor was one of the things that you, financial exploitation. And so, you know, I think, um, the modernism, the, the left of, of the modernity has a lot to do with capitalism. And you do bring that up quite a bit. You no know, consumer, how much, our bodies, female bodies are meant to be consumed, how the earth is meant to be consumed um, rather than, you know, free from expectations of that sort. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, about that, about how in your text you look at women's bodies as more as, as a, also the violence against women's bodies as sort of indicative of just violence to the planet? Uh, Well, I just read a book that I think it's, everybody should read it. And it's by two um, Hindu doctors who are in the States, Drash Patel and uh, Rupa Maria. And it's called Inflamed. Let me Google you the title. Yeah. Inflamed Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Justice. It came just it came out just last year. And in the book, they argue that it, it's no surprise. So they're both physicians, right? 
And uh, Rupa Marilla is involved in a lot of projects that involve decolonization and traditional medicine and so on. But they argue that it is no surprise that COVID is an inflammatory disease. And they say that it makes sense that as the world burns through fires, California, the Amazon, our bodies are also burning. And not it's not by chance that um, the main illnesses today have to do with inflammatory disease, which is bowel disease, Alzheimer, depression, uh, diabetes, Crohn's, you know, that there is a continuum and that as we impoverish the soil with agroindustry, our the microbiota in our intestines, intestines is also diminishing. So to me, that's a key starting point to start to think about interconnect, interconnectedness, but how also environmental violence is in our bodies, right? Um, yeah. Um, speaking of, of COVID, it's very interesting that um, COVID popped up in the process of finishing this book. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about how um, how that affected your writing or the conclusion? Conclusion. I don't remember exactly the the timeline, but maybe you could explain that a bit. Well, I guess. It didn't affect the timeline. I think I included last minute some of the writing I've been doing for an Eflux blog on COVID, which was um, describing living in 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 lockdown. No, uh, but I also think a lot about like damn, like how we can be, um, how can we stand up to the challenges that we're facing in the present, and this present is COVID. Hypercapitalism. Everybody is depressed. There is no political cohesive political project that can engage a lot of people because everything is so fragmented. So I think COVID pos- is posing an, an additional challenge to to that huge question of the present of what the future will look like. And you know, during the the first uh, few months of the pandemic, I, I had this "the world is coming to an end" um, feeling. And um, what have I inherited to my daughter, you know? Um, and there's also a, a discussion on maternity and the conditions of, of contemporary maternity and why everything is so hard and how we are self-exploiting because that's one of the, the other things, right? Um, mm, being in lockdown, we were hyperproductive and we were also being teachers to our kids and we were cooking and cleaning like crazy and baking bread and so on. But also finding that like this being forced to uh, engage in reproduction daily um, made me also think about reproduction as a radical site for the future too. And at, at the end of the book, and I think this um, pissed off one of the book's reviewers, like what is this utopia, you know? And I, I say uh, we should, substitute reproductive labor for productive labor and this is how we say fuck you to capitalism right and give it more weight and this reproduction is a place where we also heal and so on um be having been taught by feminists that we have to reject reproduction or find palliatives or solutions for it and understanding it as a burden no i try to understand it as a site of, of power and construction and and as a site for the future, I think that pandemic helped me understand that. It's sort of the power of the feminine in a way. Um, that's, that's really 
It's that's really poignant. Um, you know, I wonder if you've if you've considered yourself as with this book in particular as um, speaking to your generation of feminists in a way that no one has before. That's how I feel, and I and I feel very fortunate to be able to have this exchange with you because your writing resonates so deeply within me that, um, have you thought about your book and your work situating itself as a voice of a generation? No, Candice, I just do what I can in front of my computer every day. And, uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, bell hooks and Sarah Ahmed and, um, I, I don't know. I'm not. I don't feel like I'm saying <laughs> especially anything new. Maybe mixing it up and putting it in a different context. I don't know. But uh, thank you. <laughs> I no, I didn't think of that at all. Because it's. I don't think it is about um, saying anything new necessarily. I think it's about how you're saying it. So form versus content. You know how you're engaging with your audience and how you're. Um, you know the tone of, of, of your prose, I think really lends itself to this, to speaking with instead of to. Ah, well, you know, my partner, she loves reading and is extremely well-read, but she's not an academic. And I always have this, um, you know, this, uh, reclamo from her that she cannot understand what I'm reading. So in a way, it's a book that I thought that she could read. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> it's a book for that's her. fantastic that's fantastic <laughs> yeah because quite frankly in this generation you know what what are we doing if we're writing ourselves out of the ability for anyone else to grasp if we're just all talking to one another in this academic setting what good does it serve is the way i look at it i don't know if you feel the same way but I do, I do, I do. yeah it's yeah. it's onanistic as far as i'm concerned but i don't know that it, other people always agree. <laughs> and I also, what I, you know, I have three pieces on art criticism uh, on the book, and they are they're included because it's speaking to a younger generation and pointing to the challenges that we have as as women creators. You no, know? how to reconfigure with the how to reconfigure the female gaze. Uh, Joey Soloway have. Uh, done a lot of amazing work on that also and and Yvonne Benegas of course um, how to deal with patrimony in the capital way which is something that the Bloque Negro feminists in Mexico go and deface at every chance they have um, and and in art Lake Verea the collective are doing this uh, but also I, I, I really think that the Duchamp Jeff Kuhn's piece is super important because how do we deal with this masters and we cannot, you know, we are not part of the vision. We are the objects of their vision. And to me, it was really hard to understand uh, growing up and reading canonical literature written by men and looking at that art debate made by men, like where am I, you know, and Amelia Jones talks about this, looking at uh, given the installation by Duchamp and so on. And how do we, how do we take that question today? No, it's a question that will not go away. And I was telling a friend the other day who's a, 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 a couple of decades older than me, and she was, and I was telling her, you never forgave me for writing a book on Godard. You kept telling me, he said, misogynist 
pig. What are you doing? And why don't you give him a fe critical feminist reading? And I just realized I was dealing with my daddy issues. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which we all have. <laughs> which we all have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's interesting because I wrote my dissertation on Juan Jose Mias, which, you know, um, yeah. But I think that's part of the reason that your work speaks to me so strongly is because I, I feel like we went through sort of a similar trajectory of wanting gender not to be an issue, right? Wanting gender to be everything to be non-gendered and, and for the, the female body, the male body to be just as important as the female body. And, um, to say sexuality doesn't always have to play a role, right? Or reproduction is not always a, the, the essence of the feminine. And we've kind of, you know, we've, I think our, our, our trajectory is coming back and questioning all of that. And, and I wonder how much of that has to do with, of course, you know, just our sheer, we're, we share the same, you know, we were born around the same time. Um, but also just the, the, the way the academy is set up, you know, I don't think the academy, some people would say that the academy is radical and I would say it's very not radical and very stuck in its ways. And um, what you're doing by incorporating examples from the academy and from outside the academy is precisely what is needed in order to radicalize the, the academy more. Um, you know, I think that we... We, we, we wrote dissertations under this uh, utopia that writing is genderless because situated knowledges became uh, and feminism became a niche in academia and that I certainly didn't want to fall upon. And that there was no space for that in, in my faculty when I was a student. But I think that um, we have to make this uh, knowledge that, you know, you talk about how in, the, in your chapter, uh, that you sent me that in academia they make us uh, rationalize and produce cohesive arguments and thoughts and lines of thinking and arguments and conclusions and so on and so forth. But I think uh, the world and I think unfortunately uh, climate change and severe injustice and mass displacement are opening up for writing like this, you know, to, to, to get out of the niche and, 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 and write from another perspective. What's interesting. And I think this relates to a lot of, um, the sort of institutionalization that you mentioned in your text about, you know, sort of, um, like the corporatization of the, of the higher educational system or education in general, um, how the, the, the irony is that when we're we're thinking through these arguments from the perspective that we have now, which is privileged, no doubt, um, we're still existing within these institutions, right? And so, I have I have I don't know if you have the same moments of sort of irony, existential irony, where you think, um, how is it possible that at the same time that I'm creating these arguments about. Um, questioning the concepts that have really built up the act, the Academy. Um, you have equal moments where the Academy is just sort of slapping for me, slapping you back down into place. And it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting. Um, one last thing that I would love to talk a little bit about is, um, you talk about difference. That's something that I think is really 
for me stands out because I work within the, within the disability studies. And so, um, there is something very radical and I don't know if this was done on purpose, but the idea that, um, there is not necessarily one normalized expectation that we should question that, right. We should question what's considered to be normal, um, based upon, you know, for what purpose, right. So, um, I think that plays into female, female labor that you mentioned, both, you know, labor as in birth, but labor as in working. Um, I don't know if this is a question as much as, um, you don't, you, you mentioned difference various times in the book. Um, and I think it's almost like you've given it a different definition through your work. And I was wondering, because you do speak so many languages, you know, I think the, the concept of difference has a different connotation in different languages, right? And I'm thinking of French, English, and Spanish particularly. Um, have you thought about that with 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 these pieces? Mm. Well, what I definitely tried try to rethink was the multicultural notion of difference, which has led us to, you know, a bad place, uh, which is what I would call like liberal sensibility definition of difference, uh, which uh, enables everyone universally to join, let's say, the same platform and speak from there, um, but within certain boundaries or sites or which are also sites of privilege, no? And uh, to me, it was really strange to come to the North American academic context where I was a, a, a Mexican-German, you know, that, that was so strange to me. And um, I was expected to do, to do certain kind of work and to focus on certain things. And, of course, I went and did research. Again, our um, work is so deeply informed by our own personal experience. No, I realized that um, the topic Israel-Palestine, everybody jumped. And the issue of difference didn't apply there. That was like polarization, which is a way, you know, which was um, in a way was a signaling what is going on today. No, Israel-Palestine is a vanguard for the rest of the world of sorts. And so this is why I went there to explore that difference. And uh, it blew up in my face many times. Uh, that, um, you know, working on that project, which I absolutely do not regret. Uh, but it helped me understand uh, difference as incommensurable and how, um, you know, in liberal sensibility, which informs a lot of academic thinking, um, difference is reduced to culture, detached from class and detached from capitalist relations and Incommensurability means that two asymmetrical sites to begin with can never be measured. There is never a common measure. It's like a Kantian antinomy, no? And now we have the intersectionality. It's a tool uh, in feminism to rethink that. But how can we uh, establish empathy in this incommensurability without falling into the trust, which I also discuss at length with superficial solidarity or what I call codependent empathy or multicultural condescendence, you know, that was, yeah, I think that's 
things that I put on the table that are important to, to talk about today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the polarization is like the backlash of this multicultural uh, sensibility, uh, liberal sensibility. So, yeah. I'm glad that you brought up empathy because throughout your text, what I was thinking so much about was Paul Bloom against empathy. I was thinking about, you know, how empathy is sort of a buzzword, but can be very lazy and uninformed and how not only through discussion of empathy as a topic, but through the way that you write, um, you are able to recognize that that is problematic, you know, that, this impetus to be em- empathic is important, but it needs to come with work, much like love, right? Love is not just a given. And I, I very much appreciate that because I think that it's a very neoliberal way of viewing relationships. Just be empathetic, as a, you know? Yeah. And, and I start thinking about the paradox, which I think mentioned in the book, that nowhere happened... Never have there been so many dog shelters and so much concern for dogs and street dogs in Mexico. <laughs> and sort of the cute dog has substituted, you know, the subject of Christian charity, which is the, the poor Indian, right? Um, so why is that? <laughs> What's going on with that? But also has to do with, with uh, radically rethinking humanitarianism as the legacy of international uh, communist solidarity and the crumbling of humanitarianism by the needs of capital to expand the frontiers of extraction, no? And also thinking about the epidemics of addiction and the, what comes with it, which is toxic empathy or toxic codependency, which is a form of empathy. So we have these this two un, unhealthy, toxic ways in which we inhabit empathy. So, yeah, we have to rethink what it means, you know? Right, because it, I, I think you mentioned this in, in the book, but that sort of especially with regard to the, to addiction, that sort of empathy is beneficial to the capitalist system. Absolutely. It creates cons- more consumption and therefore, you know, creates Keeps its own the, set of the machinery going. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we're sort of reaching the end here. You've talked a little bit about um, the fact that this book will be coming out in Spanish in September, which is fantastic. Um, do you, are there plans to other, do other languages? Is that no, in the works at all? Yet. No? Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. And simultaneously you're working on, on translating the work that you did in Palestine. Yes. And, uh, I'm also working on, on a book on big that I, I talk about becoming unmodern, no, as a critique of decolonization, and, and thinking about what it means to become unmodern as opposed to decolonize. Mm-hmm. Well, I look forward to all of those um, texts coming out. And um, I, I really do look forward to reading Toxic Loves in, in Spanish. Okay. Because I there, think it will be a will different be experience. There's going to be a section on, on um, polyamor. How do you say it in English? Um, polyamory? Yeah. On polyamory, which is the thing right now for young feminists, you know. So I'm going to write a section on that, on the Spanish version. And is it going to be amor tóxico, or how how are you going to translate amor that? Amores tóxicos, I like it. Amores no? tóxicos, yeah. Futuros imposibles, that works well too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, it's been a pleasure. And I hope, that, like I said before, um, that this is a continuing conversation between the two of us. And I, I can't thank you enough. Um, and this will conclude our interview. Hopefully um, you'll gain a whole lot of readers who are able to engage like I have. So thanks, Candice. Thanks.